Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. like that possessor huh oh my god yes i do what a movie (laughs) i'm so glad i saw it yeah it's insane yes in the best possible way it is so crazy though i can't think of another movie from the son of a famous director that feels like it's part of his dad's (laughs) cinematic body of work yeah yeah completely (laughs) it's very strange It's a Cronenberg movie, literally. It really is. And figuratively, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now it's like Cronenberg and Sons yeah. is the <laughs> business, you know? It's Cronenberg squared. It's the most powerful Cronenberg movie ever. It's just distilled. Yeah, just distilled goop. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about other, like, cross-generational directors, you know? Like, you got... Francis Ford Coppola and Sofia Coppola and she went this much more independent route but Mm -hmm. it kind of feels like some version of what her dad always wanted to do in a way you know Hmm. okay I mean I feel like him in the 70s he he had access to like big studio money and he was making these big movies but he kind of he kind of always was like an indie filmmaker at heart yeah kind of thing okay and then you got like I don't know I mean like really random ones like Ivan Reitman and Jason Reitman, where his son went the indie route, but it feels so different from I, his dad's work. I don't even think I've ever seen an Ivan Reitman film. Yeah, you have Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. There you go. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Should have known. There you go. Should have remembered. On, man. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> what was I thinking? And now his son is doing the Ghostbusters <laughs> soft right. reboot, though. That's right. Yeah. Oh, man. That's crazy. <sighs> but I don't know. I mean... I feel like even when the children of famous directors follow in their footsteps, it just, it doesn't really translate whole cloth ever, you know? Like uh, like Ridley Scott and Luke Scott. Are you, you familiar with any of Luke Scott's work? Mm-hmm. I, no? I, 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 you told me about, what was that show on HBO? Oh, Raised by Wolves. Raised by Wolves. Yeah. Um, but I haven't seen anything that he's done outside of that. I mean, aside from that, he did, like, uh, that movie Morgan with Anya Taylor-Joy that got terrible reviews. Never seen it. The thing the thing about it is, like, Ridley Scott is the kind of guy where his commercial instincts are so forceful, and then his artistry, he sort of keeps so close to the vest that mm-hmm. I'm just like, how, yeah, how do you pass that on? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you pass on anything other than, like, your worst <laughs> qualities? <laughs> Oh, boy. You know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, Raised by Wolves is an extreme example because Ridley Scott directs the pilot and the second episode, 
and then Luke comes in and directs the like three and four, and it's just like, Oof. yeah, yeah, having your your son direct subsequent episodes no pressure. after your pilot, no pressure, is, right? Oh, that's that's rough, man. That's rough. Not that this would have happened, but I am kind of curious. Like, what would that be like to shoot, or perhaps even have to like edit down your own material with your dad over your shoulder? Ah. <laughs> uh, can't imagine it'd be fun, honestly. Nope, not at all. <laughs> but when Ridley Scott's your dad, I think <laughs> you get used to some tyrannical behavior like mm -hmm. that. It's oh, a very Jesus. terse commentary. Yeah, Oof. yeah. him coming in with his cigars and wine and just being like, yep, we're editing this movie today. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, I don't know, did you ever watch the special features for Prometheus? I saw some of them, yeah. Yeah, it's just like Ridley. <laughs> Why Scott did I do that? Yeah, just drinking and smoking and yelling at people. <laughs> right. <laughs> and everyone was like, "Well, we had this idea for how the entire movie was gonna go," and then uh, during pre-production, Ridley Scott just comes in and is like, "Nope, it's this now." <laughs> the guy has a very strong sense of direction. He does. He does. <laughs> we doing this? Yeah, let's do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. So happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I am Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, he's recorded in Denmark, Mr. Alex Anessi! How you doing, man? I'm doing all right, bro. I'm doing all right, you know? Those, those Danish recording sessions, though, man. Oh, my God. I heard they are legendary and succulent. They're the best. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, we're here today to talk about episode 10 of season one of The Sopranos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A hit is a hit. What an episode. <laughs> yeah. What an yeah. episode. I mean, out of, I remember a few weeks ago, you and I were talking about mm. whether or not you could take down neck. Yeah. Episode seven out of the season, right? And still have the season be a great, uh, you know, run. And I remember thinking that, kind of posing that question to you. And we were like, uh, maybe so. I was wrong. It was not that episode. It's this episode. Oh, yes. This is the episode that if you take it out, you miss absolutely nothing. I've been thinking about that that question a lot, like in relation to this episode, just, oh man, if there's one to erase from the timeline, absolutely. I, I was thinking about it too, dude. So like, if you got rid of it at a pre-production stage, if you got rid of mm -hmm. it before you shot anything, that would be even better because then instead of having Adriana and Christopher break up and have right. her not be in the other episodes, you could just pipe her scenes into those episodes and that would just improve them yep they break up and then they reconcile it's like off screen right yeah so it it doesn't even matter it doesn't pay off dramatically at all and so there's you're no just stakes missing drea de mateo from those episodes yeah. yeah yeah it would just be an improvement totally because as you said as you wrote in the notes here so perfectly like after Boca, you were so yes. ready yes. for shit to pop off. Mm -hmm. And then this episode starts and it just puts all of A those damper. plot lines so on this ice. Is, if they had just switched the order, I think that actually would have been better. I think that would have made this episode more palatable. You switch the order between Boca and A Hit is a Hit. So A Hit is a Hit is in episode number nine. And then Boca is episode 10. I think that that flows better. This episode is so self-contained, it could fall almost anywhere in the series. Yeah. You know, yep. he's not worried about the FBI indictments, really. He's got none of nope. that hanging over him. So, yeah, you could almost stick it anywhere. I'm guessing they didn't do that because they thought it would be two Christopher-heavy episodes back-to-back. -back. Oh, that's right. But, I mean, even that would definitely help. Yeah, I think you so. Just, you, you've got this storyline that just feels like it's starting to really cook, and you want to see more of what Junior's going to do next. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, he's not in this episode at all. Livy is not in this episode. All of the guys are basically gone. Like, the crew's not really even in the, in the yeah, episode. Yeah, they're like extras, basically. They're mm -hmm. basically there to, like, stack people in the frame to just give a little yeah. depth to it. That's all they're doing. Such a weird decision. Yeah, I, I don't understand why at the moment you're going to, you know, ramp up and escalate the tension. That's when you decide to do a treatise on 
assimilation, race, in American society. All these themes are very much pertinent to the show and they mm -hmm. have been woven through episodes before this. And yet when it comes up here, yeah, it feels so <laughs> disconnected. It's so clumsy. This is what gets me is we're talking about its placement within the season and then the execution itself, right? So it's like, why was this here right when you're trying to, to again, to, to escalate tension? Yeah. And then also, why do you present these themes, important themes that are very pertinent yeah. to enclaves, important ideas, and then present it in a very clumsy sort of ham-fisted way? I, I don't understand. Yeah, it's... This was the episode that I think made me have the same question you did a few weeks ago when you were like, man, is this the best season? Right. I might be having a crisis of conscience <laughs> right now. Here, oh, no. Ugh. Especially yeah. because the issue that they're trying to get at is that a lot of these Italian-American characters, especially when they're like first or second generation with like a lot of ties to the old country and the original culture, you hear a lot of Italian words being thrown around in this, people speaking little like bits of incidental Italian phrasing. Uh, these people not only don't consider themselves assimilated, but they don't consider themselves white. And so I think yeah. the show was wanting to be like, okay, so let's create the culture clash then of having them hang around people who actually aren't white, you know, not just people mm -hmm. who feel like today in their bones, you know, I'm just, I'm just not, not feeling white right now. So I'm not going to be white. <laughs> I'm not going to be white, right. white around my friends, you know, <laughs> to people who actually don't have the option one way or the other. Ex yes. Ex and I mean, that's the thing that I think is so interesting is that it is doing a not so great job at taking apart the concept of optional identity the idea that you can be Italian in certain spaces, but then when you need to, you can also call upon the general identity of being white. And there are certain people who can do that, you know, within certain uh, spaces um, when you are a doctor or you are a lawyer, you have more access there. Yeah. But what we find is that Tony cannot access that at all. Uh, for the obvious reasons that he is a working class uh, individual, and then also he is a criminal, right? <laughs> so that yeah, you've got some you've got some barriers there, buddy. He does, he does. He's got some barriers to fit in with the country club set, but at the same time, I mean, I mean, it's so obvious using the country club. Like, okay, we get it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is, if the show had also introduced black characters who were multidimensional and mm -hmm. who had their own sort of drive and and their own storylines separate from this which i mean they're they're trying to do that but it's just it's so rudimentary yeah. that would present a really interesting contrast of this is identity politics where they're actually like life and death vital important mm -hmm. you know i mean that have such consequences for just how you can exist in this country yeah. Uh, and yet the way that they do it is by introducing some gangsta rapper characters. They they just love dropping that R, man. Oh, but it's always gangsta, you know? <laughs> I know. I know. It's spoken oh, with such boy. derision. Yeah. We can talk about that yeah. in a minute. Because, yeah, we'll get back yeah. to it. <laughs> oh, no. You dunk on that so oh, hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, the recap. Let's just talk about okay, what happens okay. in this episode. Basically, Tony and Carmela are invited by Dr. Cusimano, who originally um, referred Tony to uh, Dr. Melfi. Uh, so they're meeting up with Dr. Cusimano um, and are invited to mingle with the upper crust of New Jersey society. Haha, ha, that seems funny in and of itself. But hijinks ensue and awkwardness also follows during these cookouts uh, and these trips to the country club. Uh, meanwhile, fresh off of a heist, Christopher and Adriana decide to waste all of their money by trying their hands at music production with the help from rap megastar Massive Genius, played by Bokeem Woodbine. I love Bokeem Woodbine. If you have not seen the second season of FX's Fargo, listen to the rest of this podcast first, and then go watch that season because he is awesome in that role. He's incredible, man. He's He is He's great. one of these guys. He's a real character actor where his presence, as soon as he shows up, he is completely unforgettable. 
Mm-hmm. For a while, I had only seen him in like tiny roles here and there, but with that voice and that smile yeah. he has and that yeah. name too. I mean, his name is part of the whole deal. Yes, it's so good. He's incredible. He leaves such an impression. And yeah, you get something like Fargo where he gets to really give a performance and <sighs> embody a character. And I mean, the dude is so fucking talented but he can also show up in just one scene and just add so much flavor to mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. you know everything from like black dynamite to yes i mean he's he's guest starred on so many shows i think the first time i ever saw him was an episode of the x-files back in season three it wasn't even a great episode but he just mm-hmm. he brought so much energy to his role man i mean we should just do a podcast about Woodbine, right <laughs> Let's do that instead. Yeah, anyway. exactly. <laughs> we found it, man. We're out. <laughs> so it's been fun doing goat season with you, but uh, yeah, that's the end of the show. Bye. <laughs> it's great, dude, man. We've struck gold now. We found it. <laughs> You're so proud of yourself, aren't you? Oh, I'm I'm very proud of myself. Yeah, I know you are. So you got Bokeem Woodbine playing a massive genius who yes. uh, it feels like in terms of the way that he's the way that his wardrobe was designed it feels like they're they're going for you know 90s rap mogul but yeah feels just like six inches to the left of 70s pimp as well and it's real bad dude it's just uh like no one dressed like that in the late 90s i mean late 90s rap culture is baggy jeans you're wearing your fubu you're wearing your overcoat you're gonna be wearing your chains obviously but yeah he looks like he stepped out of an 80s music video he really does um like an early 80s rap video don't understand why it's yeah it boggles my mind (laughs) yeah i think it just keeps coming back to that tired stupid like idea that the like 70s pimp character is the embodiment of authority and yeah yeah Mm -hmm. all of this and it's just it's so hacky even at this point yeah because i mean like by late 90s you're getting into like the bling era right i mean yeah 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 i think honestly what they were trying to do was uh he's he's supposed to be jay-z i i think i think they just they missed there you go. Or at least a conglomerate of a few rappers. Who these rappers are, I do not know. I was going to say. Because they, they don't seem like any rapper that I'm familiar with from the mid to late 90s. Yeah. Unless Chase uh, and a few of the other writers were calling upon experiences from the early 90s, late 80s. Maybe. I mean, the guy who wrote this episode originally is a guy named uh, Joe Basso. Basically, uh, he was an A&R guy for Island Records, and he specialized in rock music. He was not a hip-hop guy. (laughs) It may shock Uh, you to learn. (laughs) All right. But he had written a script about the music industry that was floating around, and he couldn't get anyone to make it, but David Chase read it and liked it and brought him on to the writing staff. And he only did this episode. He didn't stay on after season one. And Frank Renzulli also rewrote this episode. Okay. You get the impression that he was coming in and trying to take things in a different direction, kind of. And uh, it, it had to be cleaned up a little. It doesn't seem like he had a lot of knowledge of specific rappers. Yeah. It seems like he just more tangentially understood that hip hop was a big thing at the era with these emergent rap moguls, but he didn't really know specific people to base this character on and uh i really dislike a lot of his dialogue too because it's it's so pointedly verbose in a way that feels like an all-white writing staff which this is trying to be like oh we're creating no we're we're not we're not gonna make him like an an ignorant thug we're gonna make him very like studied and he's he's got a big vocabulary and he's he's a smart guy and it it just feels it feels like they're falling all over themselves to not be condescending and therefore are being condescending are being condescending yeah it's not genuine Oh man! All right, you know what? We just—I realized we didn't even finish the recap. What are we doing? <laughs> we're we're off the we, recap. All right, let, let's hold on. Let's hold on. Okay. All right. Let's just get to the finish. No, let's no. Just... Let's talk about massive genius, man. We're we're into but, it now. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs>
Here we go. This is the thing. Not only do they introduce this incredibly intelligent, thoughtful character who does happen to be a black American, they undercut the whole thing by having him really just be interested in getting into Adriana's pants. Yeah. And Ugh. that is the wor- that is the worst part of the episode for me. And I think an even more interesting thing would have been to do this. Is it possible that when Christopher, Adriana, and um, Massive Genius are listening to a few of these tracks, that this is more about Christopher's insecurity than it is about massive genius wanting to get with adriana aka is this really just about what's going on inside christopher's head i don't think so but i think you could read it that way um and then the other thing is that like if this guy is so smart i think it would be great to have him use that well-known stereotype that black americans are aware of oh they think i'm after this um they assume these things about me that i just want to get into this woman's pants that i can't control myself and use that to his advantage but they don't even get that far with the character. The second to last time that we're seeing him, he's just looking at Adriana dancing and that's it. It just feels lazy. Yeah, I like your idea a lot better about having it be Christopher's insecurity and paranoia. That's so in his character, Mm -hmm. but the show is very much saying the opposite. The show is very much saying that he is clear-eyed about this situation where Adriana doesn't realize that she's Mm -hmm. just about to be exploited, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that that really is unfortunate. You know, it, it's too bad too because I think there's an interesting thread that they almost grasp along those lines, which is the idea that the mob producing art has always been sort of an awkward fit for them and sort of a risky proposition that they are not good at handling and anytime they get into it, they they end up just sort of ham-fistedly fucking it up. Mm-hmm. You see that so much where it's like these musicians who had mob ties just have to get away from that at some point because it's not helping them anymore. And not the mob all. doesn't really know how to convert art into a larger profit for them past a certain point. And I, I think the same is true for movies. Anytime the mob has gotten involved in like funding movies, it's always been just a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're not good at this stuff. They're they're good at creating like extortion pyramid schemes, you know? Right. <laughs> Whereas right. art is so much about like monetary risk and oftentimes just essentially putting yourself in a bad financial situation so that you can mm-hmm. produce something and get it out there because it's important. Mm-hmm. These are yeah. anathema to the mob. This is the exact opposite of how they operate. And it's like you get a little of that in the scene where Christopher is like telling the the band members to go shoot heroin to like give themselves a good performance some edge yeah, yeah exactly yeah. get some edge you guys are sounding like the goo goo dolls in here come on <laughs> anyway we should we should get back to the recap oh, oh now you want to oh okay all right mm-hmm. well we right. had to we had to really cut into massive we genius. had to detour on a massive genius oh, boy. my god in the name itself you know what let's not i'm gonna stop so Christopher and Adriana, they decide that they want to go ahead and uh, produce music. They bring in the band, I believe it's called Defiler. And that's, uh, is they that the were called them? Defiler. Now they're visiting. They were day. called Defiler. That's right. Visiting day. And this is uh, an old connect of Adriana's, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. An old, uh, boyfriend yeah. or fuck old buddy. boyfriend. What happened? Yeah. 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 They're terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's just put it that way. They're not very good at all. Um, and that causes a a rift between Christopher and Adriana. Um, and that's kind of built out of Christopher's insecurities, Adriana's ambitions. Um, and it's just a mess. The entire reason that Massive Genius gets in touch with Chris is because he wants a sit down with Hesh. Um, and specifically, Genius wants, um, Hesh to make reparations to families of black artists who worked under Hesh and essentially may have been cheated out of their earnings. Not even may have, likely were, if not definitely. Oh, definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the episode kind of wraps up with Tony talking through his issues related to class and socioeconomic status with Melfi. And that's kind of how the episode ends. You got the whole uh, golf game, yeah. too, where he's at the country club with uh, Kuzumano and his friends. And uh, the friends especially, they they just want to talk about mob shit. They just want to talk about oh, Al Capone boy, yeah. and John Gotti and all yeah. this stuff. And uh, 
Tony is uh, miserable. Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, he he realizes he's just there for their amusement. And uh, he makes up a pretty great story about uh, John Gotti <laughs> outbidding him on an yes. ice cream truck and then ringing yes. the bell the whole way home. <laughs> That's a little funny, I guess. That's a good scene. But you've got that. And then you've got him and Carmela hanging out at this barbecue and uh, they're getting stock tips. You know, there's some insider yeah. trading going on here. Yeah, so um, I guess Carm gets into buying stocks a little bit. She's trying to get a little more uh, financial independence mm -hmm. in case of something happening to Tony. But uh, this is all the more frustrating because uh, the last episode was literally setting up for Tony to be in danger, to, to be killed by Junior. And now it's like suddenly this much more vague, like, oh, well, if something should happen in the future, Sure. Yeah. Let's just hint at it because it might be coming down the line. But it's like, no, motherfucker, this is about to be the we end of the knew. season. Shit is ramping exactly. up. Yeah, exactly. And it does not feel like that. I have a question for you. Is Meadow Soprano the smartest Soprano? <laughs> uh, she's definitely the most self-aware. I'm going to say she is. When she walks in and sees, excuse me, when she sees Carmela looking over the stocks and then placing an order. And she just walks in like this cat who knows exactly what's going on. And she's just like, Mom, what are you doing? You, you have no idea how to play the stock market. You're in over your head. This seems a little ridiculous, don't you think? And, you know, Carmela tries to justify it because, again, she is not as self-aware as her daughter. And then she just bribes her by, like, taking her out to go shopping. There's a lot of that going on in this episode. Lots of bribes to cover over shit. You've got that later with Christopher where he's essentially bribing Adriana with uh, expensive clothes because he knows that her her career as an A&R person is, is not going to gonna last and he's just trying to fix the problem by placating her with material things. So you see him taking a, a move out of Tony's playbook there. Yeah, and you know, I, I really feel bad for her in that moment. Yeah. The show is kind of telegraphing us to like more feel for Christopher, I guess, because he's supposed to be the one who's seeing this situation somewhat more clear eyed. He's he's trying to break to her as gently as he can that he thinks she's not actually good at this. And uh, of course, she's hurt. But uh, it's a weird role for him, too, because normally he's not on that. end. Right. Right. Exactly. It feels odd. And that's something you kind of notice with a lot of the characters that they are being utilized in strange ways that go against how they typically react in situations. Like the whole thing with Hesh paying out reparations to massive genius is on the face of it, an interesting idea getting into sort of the darker, the more sordid aspects of his past, but setting up a Hesh to kind of be this immovable, very stubborn force and basically just an asshole for the whole episode feels weird he's, yeah he never behaves like that otherwise he's always kind of the like very even keeled guy who can step back and and you know size up a situation and uh this episode puts him in this situation where instead he's like directly being confronted with misdeeds and having to like potentially pay out a bunch of money and having to hit back really aggressively with uh, a lot of uh, racial slurs and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it kind of sucks to see him put into this, this context. I would agree. Yeah. It doesn't seem to fit with how we understand the characters so far and how we have sort of grown with them over the last nine episodes. I think that's the easiest way to say it. It sort of takes a lot of things and kind of turns them on their head for no really good reason. I don't think that it gives us any particular insight into the characters themselves. We'd already known that Hesh was doing some dirt by some musicians because Tony talked about it a few episodes ago. Like There's that scene when Hesh comes in and talks about having been taxed by Junior, and Tony talks about the songs that uh, Hesh helped produce and he basically says, you know, hey, these were written by black kids. Like, you had nothing to do with these. So we already know that Hesh has, like, has his finger in, you know, in the punch, so to speak. Um, so I don't know why we needed to see this again. I don't know. 
And it definitely doesn't reflect well on him, as you said. Yeah. If we can, like, talk about the directing a little bit, too. Uh, this yeah. episode was directed by Matthew Penn, who's a pretty big TV director. But um, crucially, he is very much a network procedural guy. So we're talking, like, Law & Order? He did that sort of 27 thing. episodes of Law and & Order, and he's also an executive producer on that show. He's dipped into sort of, like prestige light tv a bit he's done some usa shows which okay. i i'm sure you and i feel the same way about these shows that it's like with the exception of mr robot really i don't think they've ever had a show that really went for this level of quality no they're known for like suits you know everybody's aunt's favorite show Wait a second. Are you saying you don't like Suits? I'll be honest. I have never been able to give Suits a fair shake. I don't want to hear mm -hmm. anything from you. Don't you know <laughs> Meghan Markle started her career on Suits? Don't besmirch that show and don't besmirch her career. <laughs> it was the start of her meteoric rise. Not, not through exactly. the entertainment industry, but into royalty. That's how she started. It's a great story, yeah. honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is. It is. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But uh, you look at this episode and to me, the directing feels very much like network TV. It's a lot of coverage, honestly, um, which if the listeners don't know, um, coverage is when you have a shot. Uh, it's called a single where it's, it's only one person in frame in either a close-up or like a medium close-up and you just film one of those for every single character who's talking in the scene and then you just cut back and forth between them so essentially the scene is talking heads and if you have two characters talking you set up two cameras you record both of them at the same time you get one wide shot an establishing shot and you're done that is the most efficient the most time-saving way that you could possibly film a scene of dialogue and uh this show's full of a lot of it i mean they're really like yeah. the sopranos i think of the camera gliding through scenes mm -hmm. and you get very little of that there is nothing there like visually for you know to, to really catch my eye or really even just like arrest me or have me stop just for a moment yeah, there's no camera movement there's nothing even like composition wise that i thought was particularly striking I know we didn't like the flashbacks from two episodes ago, but even that, I think, had something going for where it was trying to do something and to really keep you engaged with the story. Whereas this, like you said, it really is just like standard um, network procedural efficient filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Like episode seven at least had some style to it and more felt like they maybe didn't have the budget or time to execute some of that stuff whereas this episode yeah it just it feels like there's just not a lot going on aesthetically at all oftentimes on the sopranos a episode will end with sort of a quiet moment like a, a pause where a character reflects on something they've seen some bizarre image or just something that was said and you'll you'll just have these these moments where uh, you have the button on the scene and then you have a moment of breath where sort of everything that's just happened is considered and it's it's really yeah. effective. And in this episode, there are hard cuts at the end of lines of dialogue on almost every mm -hmm. scene. It's like as soon mm -hmm. as characters stop talking, they jump to something else because there is just mm -hmm. nothing more going on there. There isn't enough juice in that scene to like really linger on anything. Yeah. Very little going on, like, emotionally, I would yeah. say. 
And, and when, when there should be, though, right? Like, there should be. They're, they're talking about some heavy stuff here, right? Like, what it means to be an Italian-American, what it means to be a working-class Italian-American, and then to find yourself, like, essentially being uh, used as a minstrel for, you know, the, the enjoyment of, of these white people. That's something that is very, very heavy and can be pulled apart in so many different directions. And they don't take the time to really uh to think that through or to kind of chew on it at all yeah yeah you feel like tony's gonna just i mean he basically does shrug this off by the end of the episode when he plays the prank on uh kuzumano with the box kuzumano, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which it's weird yeah I, bruce kuzumano too it, his performance just feels too broad for this show he and his friends i thought they're caricatures yeah, right they really are and I wonder if part of that, too, is just because it's another, I mean, it's not as bad as their attempts at portraying the African-American community, but it's still an example of the show being a little outside of its wheelhouse, just dealing yeah. with these more white bread characters, these wonder bread wops, as they're called. Yeah. That's the one good line from the episode. <laughs> I remember hearing that the first time and being like, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> self-identified immediately <laughs> uh i do like drea de mateo's performance in this episode i think she's pretty good with what's given to her i think she's better as the series progresses yeah but i think as her first foray into being like at the forefront of an episode i think she does a pretty good job yeah this is definitely the most screen time she's had so far it's too bad that it isn't in an episode that's more dramatically compelling but yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. she's she's awesome. And uh, God, she yeah. looks incredible in this episode. I mean, I just have to say, dude. I knew you were going to go there. I will say on the show, it it doesn't often feel exploitative or leering in the way that it's showing her off because I feel like that's just her as a person. That's how she mm-hmm. presents herself. It's it's so in her character and, and she gets to wear a lot of incredible outfits in this and... Uh, I, she, I mean, she just has such style, man. The those snakeskin pants that are so insanely tight are just like you're gonna buy burned into my mind. <laughs> I do not think I could pull them off. This is what you're getting for Christmas, 2021. <laughs> oh, shit, my python. You're pants. in trouble. <laughs> That's a hell of a look, man. That's a hell of a look. It's a strong look, and I think you can pull it off. Well, now that you've said so, I I might actually have the confidence to do it. I think every character has a a defining characteristic. I feel as though Adriana's is the fact that she is she's a step ahead of Christopher, right? Like she is a little bit more aware, she's a little bit more cognizant. She's got grander ambitions and she I think she is capable of seeing a little bit further than Christopher ever will be able to. And I think obviously this is one of the reasons that she tries her hand at music producing. I think overall she has this large ambition to leave like the kind of the small closed off world that she's found herself in. It reminds me a lot of what you talked about before, which is the show is often about people who are trapped by their own culture and their own surroundings. Adriana, I think, is one of those people who could possibly pop that bubble and, you know, be happy. But she is tethered to this guy who doesn't see things in the same way. Yeah, she would have been better off sticking with the guy from visiting day. I think so. Recording in Denmark. <laughs> yeah, she could have met some Danish people. She could have been dating Mads Mikkelsen right now, which I mean, come on. Isn't that what we all want, right? That is yeah, what I want. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Drea DeMatteo, she's from New York, just like a lot of the other cast members. Um, graduated from Tisch School of Fine Arts, a fine arts degree. I was listening to her podcast and she said that she did a lot of theater growing up and didn't have a lot of opportunities for TV and movie roles prior to The Sopranos. So I think she had like a guest appearance on this show called Swift Justice, um, which I did go and look up. I went and looked is, it is up. Is Swift Justice a gun? <laughs> is Swift Justice a giant revolver held just by a the giant, main character? <laughs> it's a giant 357 yeah, Magnum right. and it has arms and legs and it chases around bad guys. It's a great show. Nice. Comes on after uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> of course. So she, I think she had, yeah, just a guest appearance on that show. She talked about how she felt like she wasn't getting anywhere. I think she ended up dumping her agent. And then she said that she auditioned for The Sopranos at age 25, got turned down for every role. But for whatever reason, 
Chase decided to bring her back as the hostess from episode one. And I don't really know whether or not that hostess is the same character or if they're just two separate people. They're trying to cover up their tracks and say that it is because they make her Mm -hmm. a hostess. And you see her Mm -hmm. at her hostess job for one second in this episode. And I think it's the only time in the whole show. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're... It's a different character. They're retconning things a little bit there. Uh, Of course. Something I thought was interesting that she said was... When she went in for the audition, she did what she always did for these auditions, which is that she tied her hair back and she put on a lot of makeup and she tamped down her accent as much as she possibly mm-hmm. could. And she just tried to appear like a very much generic white American woman, which interestingly ties into the themes here again. Um, yeah. And the irony is that she only gets the hostess part out of that but that then chase must have just seen some glimmer some glimmer of that jersey charm there and he was able to bring that out and uh yeah and she said she went back and auditioned for adriana and she made her hair as big as she possibly could and uh i believe Mm -hmm. the line that she got the role with is just her saying like ow when like christopher's (laughs) grabbing her wrist and pulling her into the club in one scene and she just like draws it out with that jersey accent and that was like what sealed it and so it's like that is amazing yeah yeah, that's that's what ends up getting her the part ironically she was trying to you know tamp down her identity and then instead she like leaned into all all of that stuff and got this great role yeah post soprano she does go on to work on what is it sons of anarchy she does some work in californication and then she does sons of anarchy very much though and it's such a like a thankless role she's like Jax's ex-wife who overdoses on crack in the first episode and it's just like uh it's just a waste of her her talents i thought Mm -hmm. but she did end up winning an emmy for her role yeah as adriana well fucking deserved man absolutely absolutely for for that fifth season um she's incredible in that did both she and imperial both won win for that yeah yeah, that's right for long-term parking oh man yeah what an episode what's popping for you in this episode (laughs) that is a a short short list you're already talked about uh, adriana's pants so i mean the my my list is quickly dwindling um i will say i think the hit that opens up the episode is probably the most unrealistic murder in the entire series. Really? All right. Why? So you got Polly and big pussy dressed as like delivery men in like silly costumes. And they back this guy who's part of a Colombian cartel, apparently, which the show has really not like gotten into any sort of interaction between them and the Jersey mob. And they shoot this guy in the head and then they immediately find all of this money. And there are so many of them there for the hit. It just, it felt, it, it did not feel. It's not how you would have done it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's not how I would have orchestrated this murder. No, no, it just, the show to me usually feels much more realistic in its violence where It'll be these sort of like lower level mafia players and they'll sort of, you know, they they find a character, they find out who he knows, the places he likes to go, what his weaknesses are, and then they sidle up to him and act very friendly and then kill the person when they're least expecting it that that seems to be how they operate most often and this where it's this more like kind of hijinksy by movie sort of a situation and they shoot him with a silence pistol and ah i don't know man it just just, doesn't feel like it fits with uh, the language of the show no it doesn't it doesn't feel real to Mm. me at all yeah, and, and having that open up the show just, I don't know, is, is very strange. At this point, how many people have Tony and his crew murdered through the first 10 episodes? Well, you don't count Brendan Falone as part of that, right? No, I don't. Because we count Junior's crew as separate. It might just be three. It might just be email. Um, Febby. Febby and this guy. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. Never really considered that. For a show that is steep in violence and, you know, got a lot of complaints for being incredibly violent. 
only three people dead in the first 10 episodes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty chill. I mean, mm-hmm. by Sons of Anarchy standards. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, pl- there's plenty of shows that would take this and then just run with it. Yeah, yeah, where there would be elaborate murders in every episode. That's true. It's true. Hmm. I got to say, there, there's not too much popping for me in this episode either. <laughs> no. The thing that I, I do think is interesting is the fact that they did try to address a topic that is salient to Italian-Americans and to minority communities, which is how do you further assimilate? What are some of the barriers to it? And then the people who can't assimilate further, who can't grab onto a larger part of the American dream, what does that do to them? Obviously, the show doesn't really execute on that. And I think there are other shows that take the idea and do it much better. The Wire, I think, is one of those. Yeah, The Wire is such an amazing treatise on lack of economic and social mobility. I mean, that show just dives headfirst into that that nest of vipers. Oh, what would you say is your most notable scene? Man, I'm I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. I don't. I I really enjoy Drea De Mateo's performance through the whole episode. And I feel like there are just like moments here and there where she gets to shine, uh, where she's just looking so gorgeous and is, you know, doing a great job. But uh, I, I honestly don't think there's a single scene in this episode that really, really works. Yeah. That really takes off. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so I got to give this an NA. Got to give it a zilch. Did not complete. The yeah. big zilch. Oh man. The big zero. Right. So how about you, man? Do you have a scene that you I, actually like? I, I can't Oh, you didn't say have one? I, no, I was going to oh. say this. My first thought was this. The scene yeah. where he does make up, or Tony makes up a complete BS story about John Gotti and an ice cream truck, that I think is probably one of the better scenes in the episode. And so I might go with that. The rest, I, I don't think that I really can quite get with. Yeah, that anecdote is funny. I think... Kuzmano's friends just kind of kill it a little bit. I get bit. it. Their performances kind of suck. Ugh, they're just so broad, man. Dude, uh, I was hoping we would have some fun dunking on this show, but I, I find like what I really enjoy about this is is just the the positivity of seeing how the show really works. How awesome it is, right? When it's at its best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's kind of it's a bummer, man. I oh. I, I don't like being negative. Oh, so you sad. Know? So I know. sad. <laughs> now nah, let's keep dunking. We're just not being fair, man. <laughs> the show's never had a chance. Nobody likes this episode, right. man. It's not like we're we're coming out with a oh, contrarian man. take about how where we're just shit talking things. Nah, nah. The like this is probably the consensus pick for the worst episode. Do you think this is season, if not the show? Wow. Okay, that would be. Int- I, I would really want to know. Come back with that. Maybe perhaps the next the next podcast because I definitely would be curious as to what is considered the worst episode of the sopranos i think this could this is definitely in the running i think i think it's either this or christopher those are the two that people really just that really stand out to people as bad christopher is the fourth episode of season four and it's like it's just when the show is at its absolute slowest and it's presenting this sort of irrelevant narrative about the Italian Anti-Defamation League, oh, and it's very yeah. broad, mm-hmm. and it's just like, where is this season going, you know? <laughs> I think that's that's how people felt with that, whereas this episode is more like, oh, we were going somewhere, and then this happened. <laughs> and then Skirt. Massive Genius got involved. <laughs> is this the first and last time that you see Massive Genius? Oh, yeah, yeah he never shows up again. Okay, all right, let's move on. Let's move along. All right. Power rankings. <laughs> right. Am I going first or you? Yeah, you got to go first, All right, man. Here we go. Um, let's see. So I think at number five, I have the American socioeconomic class system. I'm just going to go there. That's right. That's a that's a broad entry. It, it is. It is. But you got to give it the props it deserves. Just sort of the power of it to uh, stratify people into like different groups with limited mobility, Absolutely. I guess. David Simon over here. <laughs> Where were you when the levees broke? (laughs) Hey, fuck sticks. We're going to talk about minimum wage. (laughs) That's how he would bring this up. You're right. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, I would love to have a class taught by David Simon. <laughs> uh, I would love to see his comments on your paper. <laughs> It'd be so brutal. <laughs> Coming back with this limp dick essay, I'm ashamed of you. <laughs> Every essay would have a limp dick, yep. not multiple limp Just dicks. drawn right on the page. Yep. All right, so at four, I've got recording in Denmark. It's a powerful thing. If you've never been there, you've never booked a studio, and you've never sat down and played yourself some sweet, sweet guitar while you're recording in Denmark, you haven't lived. Clearly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. At three, I've got Tony. At two, I have Bokeem Woodbine, not Massive Genius. This is specifically Bokeem Woodbine, because again, he's a national treasure, he's underrated, and he's fantastic. And then uh, at number one, I've got Adriana. Nice. Yeah, I mean, she she walks out on Christopher mm-hmm. at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. It really sucks that they didn't dig into that more for dramatic purposes. I mean, after this, they just really didn't have time to. Yeah. Ah, yeah. There's a show where one Adriana escapes from upper New York, from Jersey. Yeah. yeah makes her way all the way down to uh, North Carolina, meets up with a guy who works in movie production. <laughs> They start a family together. Oh, I love I think I love you like the, where you're shaking this narrative. This is great. I think you like this show. <laughs> It'd be a favorite uh-huh. of yours. All right. What are your power rankings? Get on with it. Okay. So at number five, I'm going to put the band Defiler. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Because they don't even exist anymore. And they sound like some garbage. Just, uh, they they sound like post grunge metal pop mm-hmm. you know when like yeah. metal got so popular in the late 90s that it really started to like soften up yeah i wonder i wonder if they'd be considered aggro do you, Ooh, do you remember this? i do remember the yeah i remember the yeah, how the... aggro was considered an entire genre like you could walk into a cd store at the mall and there would be one shelf of cds just labeled aggro which i think is just like that's a euphemism for angsty right yeah, yeah, but like angst covered up with growling mm-hmm. and like drop D guitars and shit like that. All right. Like corn would be aggro, okay. you know, because Jonathan Davis is purging all of his like various childhood traumas, but he's doing it while making crazy growling noises. Yeah. So Defiler would definitely be number five. They came in singing a rock ballad during that recording, right? Like when we're seeing them. Well, that is when they are visiting day. Oh, you're right. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which is the the rebirth Uh, of Defiler. I love that. (laughs) As this Matchbox 20, Goo Goo Dolls, soft pop rock, suicide ballad shit. Oh, man. Who would you rather listen to? Defiler Mm. or Visiting Day? If you had to put one of them on in your CD player, if you had to have one of them on your iPod, which one are you going for? See, I think Defiler's incredibly obnoxious in a way that's hard to ignore. Visiting Day, you could just get really faded and like it would be background that doesn't doesn't really matter, you know? All right. I mean, at least you'd maybe have some nice guitar notes here and there, you know? You could kind of you could kind of zone out to it. But Defiler's all up in your face with this get out of our way mm-hmm. and don't be so gay. Yeah, that's right. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> it's like, which would you be more embarrassed to have bumping in your way? That's a good like, point. When you yeah. pulled up to a stoplight. Yeah, it's, you it's know? Defiler. It's Defiler, no question. Oh, God, I forgot that Those lyrics, man. God, the homophobia there. Good grief. It's so bad. It's disgusting. At number three, I'm going to have to put all of Hesh's uh, black doo-wop groups that he fleeced mercilessly there you go. in the 1950s. There you go. Because I, I'm sure, you know, there was a lot of talent there. There was a lot of heart in that music. They had that blues influence. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, uh, they're uh, they're just getting screwed over on the monetary front, you know? Yep. Oh, man. At two... I'm going to put my man, the Paisan himself of rock and roll, John Bon Jovi. Oh, yes. Okay, there you go. I thought he was number yeah, one. Yeah, I like no, that. No. He's got to be too. But, I mean, come on. It's like this one Italian dude putting out some goofy-ass mm-hmm. 
pop hair metal and uh yeah i mean shit we gotta we gotta we gotta hold on to what we've got we do we do we gotta hold on to what we've got and then at number one is all of the mulleted denizens of that new jersey rock club because they oh, clearly yeah. have their finger on the yeah. pulse that's the funny thing is you realize in retrospect actually all of these jabronis here really are the ultimate arbiters of musical taste. you're right they knew that visiting day sucks they really did they could they tell did. yeah i give melfi a b she does okay she, she's absolutely fine throughout this episode. She doesn't really have too much to do, so she gets a B. Uh, yeah, so she's she's good. She's good. wasn't wasn't heavy therapy. You could tell she was kind of just like, all right, this stuff isn't isn't particularly emotionally revealing or rich or anything. She's just letting him. Yeah, go. she's so turned off by the fact that he's like making fun of uh, that person with the cleft palate. So she's just kind of like, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, she's done with that. Yeah. Is it time for name that episode? Let's do all it. Right. We've got 10 this time. <laughs> God damn. I, I think my self-esteem would just be in tatters by the end of that, bro. <laughs> All right. Let's see. This is the only season one episode of Deadwood directed by Alan Taylor, during which Wild Bill Hickok commissioned Seth Bullock as his successor. Oh, this is... Uh... Here was a man. Booyah! Yeah. Well done. Uh, well done. I mean, great. Maybe, maybe the greatest episode of Deadwood yeah. from the whole run. Yeah. Ah, what an incredible it's, one. I loved man. it. Makes yeah. me want to go watch it yeah. right now as we're talking about it. Uh, you want to just end the podcast yeah. and just like go ahead and. <laughs> Let's just, just jump over to Deadwood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Keith Carradine, man. Ah, what a talent. He's so good. Bro. What a talent. Yeah, I I saw him in uh, Nashville recently, the Robert Altman movie. He was a fucking snack back in the day, bro. <laughs> Holy shit, dude! Carradine can get it. He had the seventies like feathered hair mm. and that like like neat beard, like a hippie beard, but like cropped very well. And he has, I mean, you heard it right here it. first, dude, dude. Was slaying, <laughs> slaying it back in the day, man. No question. Heard it here bro. first. Alex says Keith Carradine can totally get it. <laughs> yep. Ready for number two? Yeah, yeah. All right. So website Den of Geek ranked this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation as one of the top 25 must-see episodes of Star Trek, during which Worf almost becomes a married Klingon. Oh, shit. Where Worf almost gets married. Oh, 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 oh. Is this a reunion? No. Is he almost marrying Kalar? So, no? all right. So, oh, hold on, hold on. So, your first question is the episode reunion? No. Is this reunion adjacent? Yes. It is reunion adjacent. Yes, it is. Mm hmm. Hmm. Okay. Oh, 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 oh. So, this must be the first episode where she shows up. This is the emissary. There you go. There you go. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. That's in the top 25, really? Mm hmm. That's crazy. Season two was still pretty corny, bro. They were still working shit out. <laughs> There's a scene in that where they're in the holodeck, like fighting some monsters, and it really looks like a bunch of a bunch of really unfortunate special effects technicians stuffed into some 50 sci-fi monster suits fighting in a paintball arena. Oh boy. And you watch it every day, don't you? <laughs> uh but uh reunion's an awesome episode yeah. where she comes back. Mm -hmm. You ready for the next one? Yeah. What What's the name of the actress who plays Kalar? Oh, um, oh, oh man, I looked Susan it up actually. Something? Susan. I want to say it's like I feel like I'm gonna butcher the last name, so I actually don't even want to say it. Susie Plaxen. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna say something completely different, so glad I didn't. Yeah. Glad I didn't. She say She had played a, a Vulcan on a prior episode to that mm -hmm. and uh dude she is fine as fuck man oh my god you're coming with it today here first Adriana. i know i know i'm thirsty bro yeah, really uh, it's are. terrible <laughs> um she was uh she was a vulcan in that, and she's just tall as fuck too dude that's why they cast her as a klingon because she's like uh, over six feet tall oh wow okay. she was really the like elizabeth debicki of her day man <sighs> mm -hmm. just 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 so thirsty today man <laughs> <You're> right <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't even be like roundabout. No, you really it's can. Just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Holy crap, man. All right, let's move on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Third let's one. Let's move on. Absolutely. This season five episode of The Sopranos was written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess and was directed by Alan Coulter. Drea DeMatteo won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. And Imperioli won Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series. Oh, I already said the episode episode, name in this episode. uh, 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 In this episode, Tony and Adriana go to score coke and things go horribly wrong. So they both won for this? They Mm. didn't win for long-term parking? (laughs) What? Yes. That's so crazy that they didn't submit that episode. So this is uh, irregular around the margin. Yes, it is. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. You had me there earlier, and I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's right. And then I realized, like, no, I can't correct you on this because that'll give away <laughs> that'll one give of my away. hints. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I can't believe they submitted that episode. It's a weird episode. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like everyone talking shit about Adriana and Tony. Yeah. It just feels weird. It does feel weird, man. You feel like, ah, oh, this crew. Yeah. They're the worst now. <laughs> they're just the worst. Yeah. Before that, it felt like there was at least some respect for Adriana mm-hmm. because she was with Christopher and it was like people didn't talk too much shit about her, you yeah. know? All he says, like, oh, say hi to your girl for me. But like, I don't know. That's that's about it. Yeah. It, it wasn't getting into really like malicious, gross rumors, yeah. you know? Yeah. You hate to see it. Any final thoughts, man? Uh, you know, like I said, it's just it's kind of a bummer to hit these episodes, you know, that don't work. This one, especially where I feel like we just we really couldn't pull any sort of redeeming qualities out of it. But uh, the next three episodes are all incredible. Three of the best episodes the show ever did, I think. Yeah. The season ends so strong. So I I just, I feel like we got to power through and... uh, We're on the other side, man. Yeah, yeah. We're getting into this home stretch that I'm so excited to talk about, man. Seriously. Going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man. What about you? Can't really say I have any final thoughts. I mean, I think we got through everything that we really wanted to. This episode, like we said, had the order been switched, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. Had the order been switched, it would have made a little bit more sense thematically to go um, talking about AJ and then Christopher um, and then sort of like this exploration of the Sopranos and and Italian-American identity um, and then meeting um, and bumping up against other cultural enclaves and doing it in a way that's actually thoughtful but that it just fails to do that. I was going to say, like, you could switch the order and it would be less, like, obtrusive in the season, but it still wouldn't be good. It still wouldn't have any good scenes no, in it. But I think know? it would be more palatable because <laughs> yeah, I think it, this is it such would. a swerve that it, it just, it, I find it really jarring. It's true. Yeah. It is a major swerve. And just the lack of Junior, man. I know. That really hurts. Ugh, we don't get to see him post-breakup eating all those pints <laughs> of ice cream. Yeah. Oh, man. Now that you say that, too, I would have loved that. Wouldn't you have liked to see a scene with Junior opening his front door, and guess who's there? Mikey Palmese with two pints of Rocky Road, and then they sit down on the couch, and they just watch TV together, and they don't say a word. This sounds so great. I'm so sold on this instantly. I just want Junior and Mikey Palmese hanging out with some nice friend vibes. You know, some ice cream, watching a show. Just get real like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with it, where we're literally just watching them watch TV. Oh, that sounds amazing, dude. I would watch a whole hour of that (laughs) instead of this episode, bro. Uh, There's a universe where that's happening right now. In conclusion, uh, we hope you'll uh, rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you next week for episode 11, Nobody Knows Anything. So uh, thanks for listening. Peace. Peace. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 